Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on a rainy autumn day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Emma Martin. Emma is the owner of Crop Advisors, a farmer's buying group that specialises in group purchasing of arable inputs such as seed, fertiliser and sprays for farms that use an independent agronomist. Um, Emma, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Good afternoon, it's nice to be here. Good afternoon, Emma. Real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves. Um, The whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And normally we dive straight into the subject. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we do start there because it has proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourselves within agriculture, just to what extent has it affected you and your business, if at all? Um, overall, it hasn't affected us a great deal, actually. Um, when we were all sent home for lockdown in March, we were identified as key workers. Um, many of you might be aware that we had a terrible autumn with uh, winter planting and raining. So March was a key time for farms to start uh, planting their arable crops. So um, they continued doing that. And on a day-to-day basis, we were able to go and do our consultancy work. Um, Okay, we didn't meet up with farmers, but we were able to go on, make recommendations and um, place the inputs that they required. Um, So from a financial point of view, um, we haven't been hit by COVID, but we were given other challenges. Uh, We're very much a people business. Um, Mm. We all of a sudden were sent home. Um, which that's something that we've never worked from home at all. So we had challenges there. Um, As a business, actually, over the last 18 months, we've um, invested heavily in a new computer system, which was web-based. So that was um, brilliant. We were able to work from home quite seamlessly. And our other concern was obviously all the input, particularly agrochemicals in March, are coming in from Europe and uh, produced in the UK, and they had to be distributed. Um, farmers had to be a little bit more aware that things would take four or five days to turn up rather than next day. But overall, um, we haven't been affected by COVID-19, fortunately. That's certainly very encouraging to hear, Um, albeit, of course, you did have to adjust to that remote working side of things, as has been the case with an awful lot of businesses during this time. But from a leadership perspective, um, how was it sort of adapting to leading from a distance all of a sudden? Um, Everybody did incredibly well. And we sort of got on with the job in hand, which was getting input out to the farm. But from a leadership point of view, I didn't find it that easy, really, because we have an open plan office. You hear everything that's going on. You hear about all the problems that may be happening that day or concerns that people have. And therefore, when you're at home, you don't hear any of that. So you have to adjust your leadership style. So I had to spend quite a lot of considerable time phoning people um, checking that people were okay. Um, we changed to a lot of email communication on using WhatsApp. 
so that we could have quick dialogue between each other. Um, obviously, like everybody else, we set up Zoom meetings um, each morning so that we could all have a dialogue. But actually, we all adapted and it all worked very well. That's certainly really good to hear. And um, while all of this was going on as well, I know, of course, it hasn't impacted the uh, the business itself too much. But how has it been sort of managing all of this from a mental health perspective? Because I suppose the anxiety of the whole situation still probably crept in in some quarters. And mental health well-being, those are also very important facets of leadership in their own right as well. Yes, they are actually very important. And I do have um, members of staff that live on their own. And actually, that was of great concern to me. Um, the fact that they were there really 24-7, not seeing anybody else. So I think that was one of the benefits of Zoom and having an open phone call, really checking that they were okay and able to cope. And I think as a leader, one of the most important attributes is to be able to listen, actually. So you're there for for them to talk to. And um, I did make a point of that, um, phoning them regularly. And leaders have had to step up as well during a time like this and be beacons of inspiration and motivation as well, haven't they? And it can, during a time like that, become a very lonely place at the top, can't it, when you're in a leadership role and you're taking on that sort of responsibility. And just when you do need a little bit of inspiration for yourself, when it feels like you've got an enormous challenge to deal with, where is it that you tend to sort of look to for inspiration as and when you need it? Well, it's interesting that you say that because you're absolutely right. I do feel that I have an open door policy and everybody comes to talk to me, but who do I talk to? And actually, I do have a management consultant and I have a lady and she has an open door policy for me. And um, I do quite regularly uh, phone her and talk to her. Um, And really, she helps and advises me and sometimes puts me back on the track So I know which direction we should be going in, just really giving me confidence, like I like to give my employees confidence, really. That's really encouraging to hear that there is that sort of outlet to um, offload there, uh, for sure. I think it's very important, actually. It is hugely important. And sometimes it's very easy to forget when you're so drawn into the hectic world of running a business, even at the best of times, that you do have to take a little bit of time to sort of step back and take stock sometimes and almost switch off as and when you need to. Yes, and I think sometimes as a leader, you might think that you're always right, but actually you need to hear the perspective from other people. And having somebody outside the business, I think, is very helpful because they see it from a different perspective. And I think that's important. Of course, because as human beings, we're certainly not infallible. We are going to uh, to make mistakes along the way and maybe not get everything exactly right. And indeed, leadership itself is a process of continuous development. We're never a finished product, even when we're running a business. We're always learning. And indeed, a lot of leadership and a lot of running a business can sometimes be just that trial and error. Yes, very much so. Yeah. And actually, it's recognising um the different people and actually what one person needs doesn't necessarily work for the other person. And I think that's very important. You have to be very flexible and be able to accommodate everybody's needs really as much as possible. Mm. You say, of course, um, you have an open door policy in the way that you run your business, Emma, but how else would you sort of describe your own personal leadership model, if we call it that? Um, 
I like to lead from example. So I'm very happy to roll up my sleeves and get involved with everybody, um, whatever the job is. So I like to think that I can do every aspect of the business. So, you know, I hopefully know everything to do with seed, chemicals and fertilizer, even though we have department heads. Um, I think it's very important to motivate and inspire people. So that is important to me, really, um, to try and be as motivated myself, really. And just for those younger generations of aspiring leaders that may well be tuning into this, um, what advice based on your experience of running a business would you give them to really get them on the road to success? Um, The biggest thing that I learned about becoming a leader is that I mentioned it earlier, but you do need to recognize the type of people that you have working in your business and that you have to be flexible. Um, It might be that you have somebody that is incredibly, detail is incredibly important to them. And therefore, if you put them with somebody that has a casual approach to their work, then they're not necessarily going to work very well together. So it's important to recognize the strengths and weaknesses of whoever you're working with, actually. Absolutely right. It takes me very nicely onto a quota that Nelson Mandela once said, actually, and he said, surround yourself with people who are better than you. And I think that from a business point of view, that is incredibly sound advice, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, Um, definitely, Mm. because you can't be an expert in everything. Mm. And um, you've got to recognise that, really. And of course, I mentioned the name Nelson Mandela there, but just out of interest, Emma, are there any other big names out there that maybe you have looked up to as a beacon of inspiration throughout your life and your career as you built yourself up? Um, you know, I haven't really, actually. Um, that's most probably not the answer you wanted, actually. To be quite but, honest, um, it's it's perfectly normal. A lot of people do actually say, not necessarily big names, but they do often refer to either friends or family as um, a first port of call when I ask that question, just because some of the most influential people out there, the people behind today's leaders, can often be those that are closest uh, to home. And it does go to show that leadership isn't always about people that put themselves on pedestals and are out in the public eye it can be people that just sort of get their head down and get on with things quietly behind the scenes I mean interestingly um when I first started work I worked for somebody as an employee that was quite elderly so quite old-fashioned in his approach and he was quite regimental and he used to shout a lot And he used to really run the business by scaring his trainees, really. And he was an inspiration in a different way. I didn't want um, for people working with me to feel like that. I wanted to treat them the way I would like to be treated. So that was quite influential for me, really. Mm. So I wanted to approach leadership in a different way. That is a hugely important point. I think you're absolutely right there in the sense that you can learn just as much from the bad leaders as the good ones because you can come across certain things that maybe you weren't comfortable working with and you then think maybe when I'm sort of aspiring to be leading my own company myself, that is something I'm not going to integrate in my own leadership style. And you do learn almost just as much from that. Yes, you do. 
Yeah, very much so. You know, you do want to treat people the way you would like to be treated. I think that's very important, really. Exactly right. And um, just before we do uh, wrap things up on uh, today's programme, just because I'm conscious that we are running short of time, um, I would like to talk about the future. Uh, because um, last week, um, just for those who are tuning into this, and um, we are recording on the 30th of September 2020. So just um, a week ago, Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced uh, new COVID-19 national restrictions, which could potentially be in place for up to six months. So this new normal that has been a bill for quite some time now, we are going to have to continue to adjust to that in the way that we live and the way that we work for quite some time. But over that period, Emma, um, what is next for you and for crop advisors as a business, do you think? And what are you really hoping to have achieved this time next year? What are we hoping to achieve? Um, well, we're hoping to, the most important thing is to continue offering the excellent service that we offer our clients. So uh, we're negotiating seed and fertiliser. And um, even though a number of us are now working back at home, we want to continue offering a smooth service to them so that they don't really um, get the interruption that COVID is causing in the world, really. That's the most important thing, really. Mm, sounds incredibly important and um, I'll certainly be keeping um, one eye on how things are getting on within the industry as you say maybe COVID hasn't necessarily touched the uh, the business um, as much as it has others but of course it is still having an effect in some ways and the whole sort of fallout of that effect as in the way it's affected our working practices working from home for example could well be in place for some time to come so it's going to be an interesting few months for sure. I have to say, Emma, it's been a real, real pleasure welcoming you on to today's programme to hear your views on leadership and on the current state of affairs in this country. And just because of how enlightening it's been, I think it would be wonderful at some point in this next year to catch up and welcome you back onto the programme just to see how things are coming along. Thank you. That would uh, be uh, interesting to see whether I'm right in how the next six months are going to go. Let's thank you very hope, much let's certainly hope there'll be some positive news to share for sure um, and uh, most importantly until we do hopefully touch base um, in the future please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on thank you I would also reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners tuning in today. Do please continue to look after yourselves and others during this time because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, It was a pleasure to welcome Emma Martin, owner of Crop Advisors, on to today's podcast. And coming up next on the programme, we'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, During his playing career, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew spent a period of time as Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board and has also become a champion for charitable causes. I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with him. And that is coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public 
and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on. I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because 
that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and... um yeah, it's it just an extraordinary thing, and uh, without doubt, the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something, we're all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, though, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for Absolutely. Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your time as captain what qualities does one require to fulfill that role ha. um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm-hmm. you know you're absolutely right you, you know I, I remember when I, I got the role it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th- there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually 
the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... 
were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, 
Um, we learned a lot in that process, and, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two f- focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards, if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though... We're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape, or form, and um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think if the, if the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got. A couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there. I mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, it felt so much... Uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot Uh, of them (laughs) wear red trousers (laughs) anyway i think but um no absolutely no they, they were right behind us and um you know we we really want that to be something that's embedded in 
in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I'm not sure we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.